0: speaking freely with the aclu of pennsylvania i'm andy hoover your host and director of communications at the aclu of pa this episode is a follow-up to our 420 episode last month if you didn't listen to that one i encourage you to go back and hear the conversation i had with chris goldstein of normal here in episode 61 i talk with yoko miyashita the ceo of leafly On the homepage of its website, Leafly calls itself The Place for Weed. It's a source of information for cannabis consumers and people who want to learn more about many issues related to marijuana. In this conversation, we talk about the economic benefits of legalization, the importance of racial equity in the industry, and why Yoko was willing to travel across the country from Washington State to be in Harrisburg on 420. But before that, you'll hear from two people who spoke at the Capitol that day. One is my colleague, Alex Domingos, who is an organizer with ACLU PA's campaign for smart justice. And the other is State Representative Brian Sims of Philadelphia.
1: i here at one time for legalization. <laughs> Thank you for having me. My name is Alex Domingos, and I'm here with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. Uh, we are pleased to join Normal, uh, the other co sponsors, our legislative allies, and all of you here today calling for full legalization of cannabis in our Commonwealth. As an organization dedicated to fighting for civil liberties and striving to end mass incarceration, we have seen how decades of a failed prohibition regime has damaged our communities, cost taxpayers millions of dollars, and condemned our loved ones, friends and neighbors to jails, prisons and supervision. We see that even in a post-medical cannabis world, racial disparities still persist, with black Pennsylvanians being more than three times more likely to be arrested for cannabis-related offenses. In some counties, that disparity is more than six times. These arrests lead to fines, fees, probation, or technical violations of probation, or even incarceration. As uh, Patrick noted, we have filed suit after probation departments attempted to come in between doctors and their patients by seeking to deny life-changing medical care to those that are on probation. So for these reasons and more, not only do we call for full legalization, we call for our legislators to embrace smart justice. And that means using legalization to address and repair these harms. We need to prioritize expungement and resentencing for past convictions. We need to ensure that legalization does not open a back door to continue over-policing our youth. And we need to ensure that prohibition is not simply replaced by a system of civil fines and fees. It's time to abandon our failed war on drugs, reverse the harm it has caused, and embrace a future where cannabis consumers will be left to hell alone by their government. Thank you. If you don't like my fire, then don't come around.
2: Good afternoon. My name is State Representative Brian Sims, and I am especially grateful to the partners that organized this rally here today. Thank you to Normal, thank you to the ACLU, and and thank you to all of you that left your homes, your families, your jobs, your communities to come here today to try to get your government to listen to its citizenry. we often talk about the importance of working across the aisle, but too often when reaching a compromise, the most important voices of all are left out. That's the collective voices of Pennsylvanians, like the ones behind me right now. All too often, the politics and the personalities here in the Capitol stand in between Pennsylvanians and good public policy. There are few issues where the the false will of the Republicans that control the General Assembly and the will of Pennsylvanians are, are less congruent than they are on the topic of adult use legalization. So for the benefit of my colleagues in the building behind me, let's talk about some of the facts. We know that at least 70% of Pennsylvanians approve of adult use cannabis legalization and that they have expressed near-unanimous support for decriminalization and mass expungement of non-violent and small cannabis-related offenses. We know that Pennsylvania will see tremendous economic benefits from adult use legalization in a variety of ways, including creating new jobs, revitalizing our agricultural sector, and fueling COVID-19 recovery. But perhaps most importantly, we know that ending the mass incarceration of largely black and brown Pennsylvanians for minor marijuana offenses is the moral and the just thing to do. In 2019, the Auditor General projected that the legalization of recreational marijuana would bring in an additional $580 million worth of taxable revenue to Pennsylvania, a state which I might add continues to suffer from millions of dollars of Republicans' structural deficits and falls far short of fully funding our schools. The job of our legislature is not to ignore science or citizens, and it sure isn't to use bad science and bad faith as arguments to prop up outdated racist and classist laws. As many of you gathered here today know, not everyone in the capital is turning a blind eye, and many of my colleagues and I have been working hard to tackle this issue. I'm proud to co-sponsor and advocate for my colleague, Representative Wheatley's House Bill 2050 as well as the legalization for bill proposed in the Senate by Senators Street and Laughlin. Both of these bills are gold standards for adult legalization and would be a boon to Pennsylvania's economy, to its small businesses, and to its farmers. To date, 16 states and the District of Columbia have fully legalized cannabis use for adults, most notably New York and New Jersey, two states that we share borders and economic zones with. Regardless of your ideology and your personal feelings about marijuana, it is undeniable that now is the time to act in the best interests of the Commonwealth. So to those who may be uh, ideologically opposed to marijuana, I urge you to listen to the science, understand the policy, and listen to the 70% of your neighbors and your community members who support it. The time for cannabis legalization is undeniably here. And I'm looking forward to taking up the governor's call and to working with my colleagues to pass legislation to support a fair, just, and economically prosperous Pennsylvania. A Pennsylvania that doesn't make criminals of some and entrepreneurs of others.
0: Well, Yoko, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. This is great. I'm glad we could connect and talk about cannabis legalization.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and joining you from Harrisburg.
0: Yeah. So you're the CEO of Leafly. Tell us about Leafly. What is it? What do you all do?
3: Yeah so Leafly has been around for 11 years and we are the go-to destination for cannabis consumers. We've been we've focused on education and research and science and helping consumers navigating their path through cannabis. And if you know anything about cannabis, you know there are thousands of strains and multiple form factors and being able to help consumers understand how cannabis will affect them is part of our mission in terms of connecting cannabis good consumers with the right cannabis products. then connecting them to licensed brands and stores nearest them.
0: Okay, and how did you get involved? I, I saw that you started as general counsel for Leafly in 2019. You became CEO a year later. I also noted in your bio that you were counsel for Getty Images. How did you end up being involved in cannabis advocacy?
3: Yeah, so my training is as a lawyer, and you'll find that this is an industry that's actually populated by a lot of us. So (laughs) I'm sorry, or great, (laughs) but my background was in media. As Well, so the combination of media and leafly really being the organization, you know, the world's largest resource for cannabis news and information, combined with its advocacy of can for cannabis legalization, and this was happening in my backyard. I'm based out of Seattle, Washington. It was um, an industry that I had been watching closely. It's just so robust and brings into it so many issues. That as a lawyer, it was just, um, I, I couldn't have asked for a more perfect opportunity to, to be a part of a new industry and forming and laying the tracks as we go.
0: Uh, it's okay to have lawyers around. We don't mind. As uh, At the ACLU, we have quite a few lawyers that we work with, so we're we're kind to lawyers. <laughs> Um, and you mentioned you're, you're based in Seattle. We're we're actually recording this on April 19th. So you're here for an event tomorrow at the state Capitol. Um, why was it important for you to come to Pennsylvania, to come to Harrisburg?
3: You know, Pennsylvania is massive, both geographically and economically, and its relevance to cannabis. You know, you, you went medically legal in 2018 and last year generated 810 million in revenues. That's on the medical side alone. Combine that with your geographic proximity to major states that have just legalized New Jersey and New York. And we think that so we think this is the next spot, both the popular support for cannabis, plus the geographic proximity to markets that are going to be coming online. Like this is Pennsylvania's game to lose. If this state does not legalize, there will be massive outflows of revenues and jobs to your neighboring states. So we just thought this was a critical time to show up for our consumers in this space, for your state residents to advocate for legalization here.
0: Yeah. I don't know if the comparison is perfect, but sometimes I think of it as similar to the path that happened with gambling. Pennsylvania did not have gambling for a long time. You know, people organized bus trips to go to States that had gambling, West Virginia, New Jersey, uh, and eventually Pennsylvania realized, you know, this is, this is money that's being spent by our residents in other states, um, and it's something that we should open up as legitimate business. And um, I feel like maybe cannabis is in the in the same heading in the same direction.
3: I, I think it's exactly that, and it goes beyond can, uh, just you know an industry like gambling. You've got you've got such a broad range of jobs that can form around this, and reinvigoration of communities that the cannabis hold as potential that we just think this has massive opportunity to then also think about how you want to use those revenues and redirect them into community reinvestment, as well as addressing things like the harms of the war on drugs on impacted communities.
0: So you mentioned about jobs and the, the way this industry generates jobs. In February, Leafly released its 2021 jobs report. What did you find? <laughs>
3: It is the fastest growing job growth, the job engine in this country. We have 321,000 jobs now in cannabis across the country. That's, um, you know, that's more than the number of dentists we have. And this is the fourth year running in terms of this kind of economic job growth that we're seeing in this industry. You know, your state alone had 7,700 full-time equivalent jobs that were that were coming out of your medical industry. So it's just this massive engine. And in, you know, so many businesses have been so negatively impacted by COVID. But cannabis has been a bright spot. We've been able to keep stores open as a result of it being deemed essential, which meant, you know, everyone in that chain, right, from the growers to the processors to the distributors to the retailers, we've been able to support that through tough times.
0: Yeah, that was really fascinating to me. I read the summary of the report and there was some narrative in there about the worry of the impact of COVID-19 and yet the industry seemed to have weathered it just fine. And, and it may have been in part because of state officials who recognized that medical cannabis should be considered essential.
3: It's 100% right. And I think that's, you know, we talk about it as the potential and the power of the plant. This is for some for many, a medical necessity. They turn to cannabis for their daily treatment. So for that recognition of cannabis being essential was a massive shift, I think, in what we consider this very long road to turning around failed policy around cannabis prohibition. But that's a big step forward for us. And this, you know, what we're out to do is really educate and put that data and that science out there for folks to make better policy decisions as a result of it.
0: You mentioned some of the social impact of prohibition and one of the things that the jobs report gets into is the racial disparities that there are racial disparities in ownership of legal cannabis companies black people represent just 1.2% of the owners of legal cannabis companies so what do you think is driving that
3: disparity. Oh, wow. Uh, We almost have to sort of step three, take three steps back. But I, you know, from my perspective, it starts with how have you structured the industry and the regulation of that industry? There are significant capital requirements and um, you also have to, you know, we're not, we can't access traditional banking as an industry because of federal prohibition. So you have lack of access to capital. If you look at communities of color, there's traditional systemic bias in lending. So you have, so you've got two issues compounded. You don't have access to traditional banking. And if you come from, you know, um, certain communities you you are already lacking access even if you had access to capital so it's almost like a double constraint on your access to capital that's necessary to fund and start a business this is actually a high capital requirement industry and even in the regulations there have been uh, intentional or inadvertent requirements of holding or owning property before you're granted a license. Think about that assumption in terms of who can afford carrying the costs of property before you're even guaranteed a license in a business to start. So I I use that as illustration of sometimes you have to take a step back and look at all of these regulatory structures that are potentially impairing equitable access to even starting a business. So I I point to capital as one of the big ones. as a result, you see in some states massive, you know, large organizations that are coming in, and you'll see how a state is structured, whether they're vertically integrated, i.e., one per, one party owns growing processing and distribution, or horizontal, where you know there's those there are restrictions on who can hold those licenses. But how you structure a particular regulatory um, environment can also decide who are the winners and losers. So I think just being mindful of what those um, parameters are and how they may or may not impact equitable ownership is something we have to go into with eyes open in any legalization effort.
0: So you're the expert, but as my first reaction when I hear the vertical versus horizontal is it sounds like vertical makes it harder for people with less capital, that there's less opportunity to get into the industry. Am I
3: right on that? Is it that- can. It can. And I think what you see emerging is different uh, ways of approaching vertical, where you might see vertical restricted for large players, but vertical preserved for smaller craft players okay, and small scale. And I, you know, I, we work with everyone in this industry, and we're just saying, you've got to look at these carefully and the impact of how it drives, how a market develops to figure out, is this what I want for my state? What are right. the objectives I'm trying to accomplish? And I think that's a very state by state specific, you know, should be a community driven inquiry of how do we want to use cannabis legalization?
0: Right. Let's well, segues as well. And so the next thing I want to ask you about, you know, in my work as an advocate, I do pick up on the fact that there seems to be some tension between consumers in the industry. One of my guests on a previous episode talked about that. And, and there are a lot of debates over legalization policy. You've, you've, talked about some of them. You know, There are debates over home grow, who gets licenses, cost of licenses, uh, employing people with criminal records. Where does Leaf Leaf fall on that spectrum? How do you all balance all of those interests?
3: Wow, that's a lot to sort of. I wish we could say we had the answers to all of those, but I think we start. We're really the tip of the spear on education. Like, let's unpack this. Let's unpack this from starting with the history of the plant. Let's then talk about the policies that led to prohibition. Let's then talk about where we've found ourselves over the last you know four to five decades of prohibition and what that's resulted in. Let's make smarter decisions on the basis of fact and history. Let's look at some of those. Cannabis convictions and say, was this fair? Was this a result of failed policy? Is it fair to restrict them from employment? You know, that's something where we will look at and say, you know, and and then you've got to look at. You know, one thing that we do some work in and that we're working on in our home state is expungement. We were an early state to legalize. We didn't have an auto expungement provision. There are 66,000 cannabis individuals with cannabis convictions on their records that are eligible for expungement but haven't taken advantage, advantage of that. And you think about the collateral consequences then whether that's employment, whether that's housing ACLU, you guys have done a ton of work in this space. And we absolutely absolutely need To go back to education and understanding, so employers know: is this really a conviction that you should be holding against a candidate?
0: Oh yeah, that's huge. Um, We just feel like that's absolutely critical. And here in Pennsylvania, we're seeing a consistent um, we're seeing consistent data showing that uh, the arrests for possession, just possession alone, uh, are steady at about twenty thousand per year. Um, the only significant dip we've seen was when Philadelphia decriminalized um, and started issuing civil tickets for possession. Um, so police, until they, until we get to de- decriminalization, ultimately legalization. You know, it's clear that law enforcement um, is going to continue to arrest people, and that that comes with all kinds of collateral uh, collateral consequences.
3: And, you know, that's disproportionate rates, right? Your data is right. no different than any of our states that are three to four times, if you're black or brown, more likely to be arrested for cannabis than anyone else, despite, you know, similar rates of usage across communities. So that, that's an ongoing issue. You know, you, it's this, I, I think it's on us as citizens in our communities to say, is that how we want those dollars spent?
0: Right, right. right.
3: It, it, again, it goes back to that education of 20,000 arrests a year at $75 million to the state coffers, you know, of budgets. How else could those dollars be used? Is this the best way? Sp- and, you know, it's not just the individual collateral cost, but what's the cost, right? What have we lost in terms of productivity of people taking out of our economies?
0: Right. So you're going to be speaking on the Capitol steps. So, of course, politics just hang over, hang over that event on 420. Uh, and Pennsylvania has split control of government. The Republicans have control of the legislature. They've had that control for uh, the last 11 years. Uh, the Democrats control the governor's office. They've had control of the governor's office for 14 of the last 18 years. You can fact check me on this. If I'm wrong, I'm not aware that recreational legalization has passed the legislature with Republican control. So what do you think the path is to getting that done in Pennsylvania or any state that has similar political dynamics?
3: It's, it's a really fascinating one. And it's, you know, this is my first time leaving my home out of COVID. And it's, uh, it's really just great to be out, out and understanding and getting a sense for what are the local politics on the ground. I think regardless of where you are, you can't you've got to look at the two thirds support across the state for legalization that makes this a bipartisan issue. And frankly, that's what the data from the November elections told us that cannabis legalization is a bipartisan issue. It has, it's not blue or red. It has support across the board as they call it. It's probably the one unifying platform for all of politics in this country today. So I think it's really incumbent on our representation to pay heed to that. You know, the latest, It was either a Pew poll, had that number up to 70% nationwide. And, you know, we talked through some of those stats in terms of what are some of the economic outcomes of this what industries are we turning our backs on if we don't legalize this what is the potential loss of revenue I think we've got to think about that as opposed as well as all of these other issues we've talked about in terms of the criminal justice impacts but it's time to just put the facts and policy first and say what's the right thing for our communities and what's the right thing for our people and I think that answer is pretty clear that it really is a push to legalize recreationally
0: yeah as a former lobbyist, I have said probably on this podcast before that the political class is always the last to know, (laughs) you know, the public is always ahead of the the politicians. And it seems that way in this instance as well.
3: I I think I would love to hear, you know, as part of my self-education, I would love to hear from you. What do you think sort of the local specifics are in terms of a um, what are the barriers to legalization in this state from your perspective?
0: Well the the 80 year narrative of prohibition obviously is something that takes a while to unwind. So I just think that it, you know it just takes patience to bring people there. And you know, like a lot of legislative bodies, we have people coming from different districts, different cultures, um, 203 members of our state house, 50 members of our state Senate. Uh, and so moving the right people to recognize, why this is so critical, critical just takes time. One of the things that I thought was interesting looking at your website is just, it just was a reminder to me of just the legitimacy of this industry. And this is what we've said as advocates for years that we want to bring an, a, what is an existing industry, but currently a black market in a lot of, you know, it's an underground market in a lot of States like Pennsylvania and bring it up into the sunlight. Um, so that way you, you have um, legal jobs, like you're talking about, you um, generate revenue. Uh, people don't have criminal records, and all the impacts that come with being in the criminal legal system. Um, the benefits are just obvious. Uh, but you know, like I said, 80 years of reefer madness takes a while to uh, to undo.
3: It, it's fascinating to me. I've never worked in an industry where compliance is held to uh, you know an elevated status. It is compliance first any any player worth their you know salt in this space is all about compliance we all consider it a competitive advantage and this is how you have to play play this and i've just been so impressed in my time in this space around it's a it's never a question we are all working to elevate this and we are all working to bring an industry out of the shadows and we are all working for this to be inclusive and equitable. And there's just this fantastic opportunity for us to do it differently with a level of intentionality that you don't get to see very often.
0: So you may have already said your key points that you're going to say tomorrow, but since this, uh, this episode will be posted after tomorrow's event. So can you give us the quick summary? What, uh, what are you going to be telling folks tomorrow on the Capitol steps?
3: It's, you know, for, for, it's kind of where we started and why are you here today? And and you are the Keystone State. This is, this is going to happen to you. So I would just love for Pennsylvania to take its deep, rich history in agriculture, to take its deep history in industry and lead here because you have the potential to be a massive market, to grow jobs and to continue to be that engine in this country. And, you know, it's, it, like I said, those dominoes are falling with your neighbors. Be a part of this. Don't let this happen to you. Control your destiny.
0: So the website is uh, leafly.com, L-E-A-F-L-Y.com. And there's an app as well. Folks can check it out and find out all the latest news. Yoko, thanks so much for taking the time. It was really nice to talk with you.
3: Thank you so much, Andy.
0: That's Yoko Miyashita, CEO of Leafly. I also have to give a shout out to everyone with Pennsylvania's Normal Chapters who organized last month's 420 event, especially Jeff Reedy from Lehigh Valley Normal. Thank you to Jeff for asking the ACLU to be part of what was a great action. If you like what you hear on Speaking Freely and appreciate what the ACLU does, you should be a member. Go to aclupa.org join to donate today. And that brings episode 61 to a close. The audio editor of Speaking Freely is Freddie Foulet. Our video editor is Cambria Lee. Our music is from bensound.com, and the executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Schufer. I'm Andy Hoover. Until next time, be healthy and be free.